All right, we are, uh, we're starting a couple weeks in stories that are focused on the calling of disciples, and we'll be in John chapter 1 this week, and then we jump to Mark next week, and then honestly, we spend most of the year kind of in the gospel of Mark. This, this, this year of the lectionary cycle kind of focuses in Mark, so we'll spend a lot of time there, but we're in John 1 this week, and uh, we're gonna, again talking about the calling of disciples. Uh, I, honestly, I believe discipleship is probably going to be a strong theme this year. It feels like to me, at least it is. Uh, in my own life and in my own thoughts. Uh, so I imagine that'll, that'll come through. Um, and as we talk about it, I, I kind of want to clarify a little bit about what we mean when we say disciple, because um, I'm not just specifically talking about the 12, happen to be guys at this point, 12 guys from Scripture who walked around with Jesus and, and were kind of closest to him in that sense, uh, the, the apostles, uh, but more generally talking about those whose lives are oriented uh, around Christ, Right? Uh, not just people who like them or give uh, or admire them or give mental assent to some idea about Jesus or the things that he taught or claimed, but those whose lives proceed differently because of his centrality to their lives, right? So as imperfect as they may be, uh, the disciples are those who li- order their life around this one ultimate commitment above and beyond all. And today, uh, we focus on the invitation to Nathaniel. And if you're thinking, man, I feel like I haven't heard much about Nathaniel, that's because there isn't much said about Nathaniel. In fact, John is the only gospel that even mentions uh, Nathaniel at all. Some uh, scholars think that maybe Nathaniel was Bartholomew, because Bartholomew is mentioned in the other three gospels as one of the 12, but not mentioned in John. And, and Nathaniel's mentioned in John, but not there. So maybe it's the same guy who had a couple different names. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I kind of hope it's not because that'd be a really terrible nickname. Like, you know, Peter gets the rock and these guys get Sons of Thunder and Nathaniel gets Bartholomew. It seems like a bad nickname comparatively. Who knows? But uh, we hear about him a couple times in John. And so we are looking today at specifically, it is the calling of Philip, although there's not much said about Philip. Uh, Jesus just says, follow me. He says, yes, that's it. Uh, so, uh, and then it gets into the idea of, of being uh, Nathaniel being called. So there's three kind of things I want to really talk about in regards to this tonight, and then next week we'll jump in a little more deeply on this, this idea of what a disciple really is. Uh, so John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51 uh, says this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Previous to this in John, he's been calling other disciples and stuff, so it's keeping that, that line going. Uh, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was, was from Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, very truly, in the Greek that is amen, amen. That's what it says right there. In John, that means pay attention. So amen, amen. I tell you, and that's a plural you, it's, it's a y'all would be a good way of saying it. We Southerners have it right in the Greek translation here. Uh, y'all will see heaven opened, and that means staying open, 
we see heaven stay open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. For the Word of God in Scripture, for the Word of God among us, for the Word of God within us, thanks be to God. All right, it happens to some degree every sermon and every time I get up here. Uh, I kind of wish it wasn't true. I wish I could be purely objective uh, vessel for some kind of divine knowledge for you, but uh, I've started to burst a bubble. I'm not. And every week when I get up here, uh, I bring some of myself to the text and the sermon. That's just the way it works, right? It kind of has to filter through me if I'm the one putting this together. Uh, This week, though, I'm I'm, I'm bringing a lot of myself to it, I think. And so I want to go ahead and confess that up front. It was hard not to read my own life, and my own sense of discipleship in this story of Nathaniel. I recognize myself a lot in this little story. So I apologize ahead of time if I've over-personalized it too much or read myself into it too much. But as long as I can confess that up front, um, this is a church and you have to forgive me. So, uh, so that's that. But again, there are three themes that I kind of want to jump on here and, and, and talk about. I'll try not to belabor any one of them and make this go too long. And they don't start with the same letter. It's not a really great three-point sermon uh, in that sense. Um, But I want to think about three things that I think are pointed out here that are important for us to recall and remember in our own ideas of discipleship. And the first that I think is worth noting is that all that we read about here, all of this takes place, this calling of Nathaniel takes place within the context of community. While Nathan as an individual is saying yes to Jesus as an individual, this is not an individualized story. It's a communal story, right? Jesus may have been a stranger to Nathaniel or some of these other men uh, that he calls at these points, but they were not strangers to each other, right? Philip is from the same small town as Andrew and Peter, it says, which might explain why uh, it doesn't take much convincing to get him to say yes, right? He's almost certainly already talked to the other folks who were following Jesus and heard about him, and so when he is called, he says yes. He knows something from these other disciples uh, and says yes, very quickly, more quickly than most of us would, uh, to Jesus. And then Philip turns and finds his own friend, Nathaniel, and invites him into the group. So there's, there's this, this idea that while Jesus may be a new reality for some of them, there's a communal aspect to it. It is friends engaging in this with other friends. And I don't think we should underestimate the importance of those existing connections. As compelling as Jesus was, uh, as supernatural as Jesus was, um, I don't think this was just about, like, he, play, he did a neat trick about a fig tree, and so I said yes to following, right? I think there's more to it than that, and I don't think we should underestimate those relationships or the importance of a friend's invitation. And now some of you are starting to tighten up a little bit because you've been in church before, and you know what happens when we start talking about inviting friends. I know the idea of, like, bearing witness uh, to our friends is a concept that gives most of us hives based on church experiences we've had in the past. Because if you grew up in church or a church like I did, and we think about this idea when we are compelled to do this in one way or another, we think of guilt-ridden, high-pressured sales pitches that are uncomfortable conversations with strangers who never asked us to answer the question that we seem intent on addressing with them. Right? You might think about the weirdness of a friendship you may have had with someone who didn't go to church and every week feeling like you're not doing something right if you're not somehow manipulating every conversation to Jesus and getting them to your church to walk down the aisle and join the church and hooray, hurrah. I'm not talking about that. However, even though we're not going to talk about that and about these manipulative kind of things that we have a lot of times experienced, we have to confess, I think, and own up to how central 
the idea of testimony, of, of the testimony of others really is to our lives as human beings, right? We read the reviews on Amazon to see what other people's experiences were before we purchase the item. Yes, most of them are complete lies, but we still read them and make decisions based on them, right? We open up Yelp when we're in a new town and want to find a restaurant that's good because I want to know what other people's experiences were if I'm going to eat in an unfamiliar town. When you have something new that you're facing, you post on social media, has anyone else ever dot, 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 has anyone found someone that can fix dot, dot, dot? Like we want to know the stories of other people so we know how to better live our own. Some of you can't even order off a menu at a restaurant until you know what everyone else at the table is getting. You have, they have to bear witness to their own meal choice before you feel comfortable ordering something. And some of you are going, no, 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 and some of you aren't saying anything, and you're that person, that's okay. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Because I, I, I do that sometimes. Like you hear someone else order something, and you go, nope, my heart wants that. You know, a heart doctor may not want me to get that, but my heart wants that. It's a fundamental part of who we are. Listening to the testimony of others, understanding and learning from the experience of others. Unfortunately, Christians uh, have tended to make bearing witness an insincere competitive sport that a lot of us now dread. When it should simply just be an act of honesty, an act of openly talking about what we've experienced, what matters to us, and why it matters to us. All it really is supposed to be is telling the truth, right? And we should all be able to get behind that. I would bet that almost none of you are here, either in this room or here in general, uh, in Christianity, trying to follow Jesus, uh, without the context of someone else's witness or invitation. You almost certainly, in some way, came with or came because of a friend. And I know that is fraught, and I know it can feel weird, and I know it's easy to get manipulative. I know it gives all the introverts in the room some nightmares to even think about that church trauma associated with it. But it doesn't need to be any of that. It should be a part of our lives. We should be able to tell the truth about what matters to us, what we've experienced, and why. If we do it in the right way, it's a way to welcome ongoing conversation and discussion with people. And I do mean conversation, not dictation, but conversation. It should be a part of our lives. Because others need it from us as much as we need it from them. Disciples are made in community. That's the first thing, and we could probably spend the whole time talking about that. That's the first thing I, I made note of here as I thought about it this week, is how disciples are always made in community. And then beyond that, with Nathaniel's discipleship, and this is where I start really reading myself into the text, disciple, uh, Nathan's discipleship hinges on a couple of things that happen at once, and I think it indicates why Nathaniel responded the way he did. I think what Nathaniel experiences here is being truly known and still invited being truly known and still invited. I love this rapid-fire process we see with Nathaniel here, who goes from skeptic to confessor in just a couple of verses, right? Faster path than most of us. Not Philip. Philip was even faster. He doesn't even actually respond in the text. He just all of a sudden is preaching on behalf. But this rapid-fire uh, process with Nathaniel. First, Philip tells him that they have found the Messiah, and he tells them who Jesus is and where Jesus came from. And when he says where Jesus came from, Nathaniel responds somewhat like uh, what if you met someone from Tuscaloosa, how they would respond if you said, I think USM is going to win the national championship next year. They would say, who and where? 
There's no way that happens in that place, right? Where? Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, he utters what would have, could have been innocent sarcasm or could be, honestly, very deeply rooted prejudice for people who live in that part of town and are from that place. We're not sure if it was lighthearted or if he had a real bone to pick with anyone from that area or had prejudices against folks in that area. We don't know. But to say, can anything good come out of Nazareth may be the most offensive thing you could say to someone about their hometown, right? Now, it's not Philip's hometown. It's Jesus' hometown. He's, Philip's not from there, so he is safe saying it to him. It's like one of those jokes that you know you should walk away from. You know the jokes that start with this? And then people lean forward? That's when I know, when I'm in public, I'm getting ready to hear a joke that I don't want to hear and I'm not going to laugh at, right? The joke that's at the expense of this kind of person or a person that's from there, but for some reason you're a safe person for me to say it to, right? Um, that's the kind of thing that, that may be happening here. So he says the most offensive thing that you could say about Jesus in his hometown. He looks around before telling the joke. Then they walk ahead and they go to go see this supposed Messiah. And Jesus demonstrates immediately to Nathaniel that he is supernaturally aware of who he is and what he's been doing. Right? He names the fact that he was under the fig tree. And a lot of commentators have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is the magic of the fig tree? The fig tree someplace in the Old Testament represents this, represents that. Maybe he's talking about this. I don't know any of that. I don't actually think that's necessarily the point. I do think that there is significance to the fact that he just said this awful thing about Jesus in his hometown, and then Jesus immediately demonstrates, I've been listening in. I've been watching, right? I know everything about you. This would be a logical place for Jesus to bring down the hammer on someone who just talked like that about his hometown and about people from that hometown. He knows Nathaniel. The implication, I think, is that he knows even the awful thing that was just said about him, he knows all that stuff, all the stuff he's not supposed to know. And I think this is significant to the one who just thinks he secretly said something very offensive and prejudicial about the person who he now knows supernaturally sees him. This is that classic scene in a movie where someone starts talking bad about their parents or their boss, and they're going on and on, and they're getting more and more excitable and, and macho about it, and then the person they're talking to's eyes continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger until the person talking says, oh, they're standing behind me, aren't they? Jesus demonstrates that he knows, really knows who this person is. And if you're anything like me, being really known is both the most attractive and most terrifying thing on the planet. And here Jesus demonstrates, I know who you are. And yet, he's still invited. In this one moment, Nathaniel is somehow exposed in a way that could terrify you, but he's also included. And I'm not sure, and again, I'm maybe just reading myself into this, I am not sure there's anything more core to what we desire as human beings than to have both those things happen at the same time. What could possibly be better than being truly known and still loved, still included, still invited. Someone to see us for who we are, warts and all, and still want to be with us. I mean, how much time do we spend curating our lives for others, dressing ourselves up in such a way, posting things, doing all these kind of things to try and put our best 
foot forward to, on some level, if we're honest, lie a little bit about who we are so that we may be more acceptable to everyone else. And yet, here we have a God who knows fully and still invites. The good news about God's unconditional love is that it's given freely, without condition, even as God knows everything about us. Every embarrassing detail is precisely what God loves about us. You heard read from Psalm 139, one of my favorite little passages from Psalm uh, today, which is uh, how, uh, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them, where I'd account them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Right, this almost obsessive kind of love. A God who can't stop thinking about us. A God who, is, who looks at us, sees us for who we truly are in our most vulnerable, ugliest state, and still calls us beloved. This past Wednesday, we were looking at the first couple chapters of This Here Flesh and one of the small groups where you have homework. But it's good homework. I highly recommend it. The, first two, the, first, uh, the intro and first chapter were terrific. And I came across this wonderful passage uh, by Cole Arthur Riley, the author of This Here Flesh. I think I've got a slide for it. It says this, What does evil have to gain in tricking us into believing we are anything less than glorious? I would venture to guess it swallows our belonging first. After all, a person does not wish to be seen if they believe they are ugly. Self-hatred moves in. It makes a mockery of our limbs, twisting and contorting them for its own means. And last, I believe... It steals our love. For who can accept love that they do not believe exists for them? I, do not have many, I don't have many certainties about God. I do have many hopes. Chief among them is that it's true what they say, that God is love, is made of love, and looks at the faces of you and me and my grandma, and without hesitation or demand, delights. God is love, made of love, looks at our faces, and without hesitation, delights. That's some good news. And I think that's what Nathaniel's, I may be just reading myself into this, but I think that's what Nathaniel's experiencing here. To my mind, this is an essential premise of all discipleship and faith, because I know it was for me. This was the watershed moment. This is from when I went to being someone who believed in Jesus to someone who wanted to try and be a disciple in whatever broken way I could figure that out was the unbelievably good news that the creator of all things knew me, really knew me, and still deeply loved me. An invitation like this is what I think Nathaniel is responding to here. I think it's why he turns a corner so quick, because you don't get a better deal than that. I don't think he's just impressed with the parlor trick of Jesus talking about a fig tree. I think he knows that he is seen truly and still invited. I think he knows that he is exposed and yet included, embraced, and that's just about the best thing possible. So I think we see that all discipleship takes place in the midst of community. I think that true discipleship is based on being, knowing that you are known and still loved. And then finally, something here, and we'll really unpack this even more next week, but I want to talk about it for a minute tonight. I think we are shown that this calling to disciple is thoroughly, the, the $10 theological word here is Christocentric. In other words, it is all about the person of Jesus. And I think we could all argue that a lot of what gets called Christianity today has very little to do with the person of Jesus at all. But Jesus makes a bold claim about what discipleship will involve to Nathaniel. 
Remember, he says, you will see greater things than these. And note, the very next thing that happens is a much greater thing. It's the wine at the wedding, which is my favorite miracle. I don't know about yours. Pretty impressive. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, and I'll do a little paraphrasing here based on the Greek. He said to him, amen, amen. You all will see heaven stay open. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And this is Jesus putting himself in that story we talked about a couple months back, Jacob's story, right? The story of Jacob's ladder where he has the vision where heaven opens up and there's this ladder kind of connecting heaven and earth and the angels descending and descending upon it. He gets to kind of see this thin place where heaven and earth meet. And Jacob explains, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it, right? He was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. And now Jesus puts himself there. He is that spot. Jesus claims to be the place where heaven and earth meet. He is the ladder that connects the two realities. God is here, and they just didn't know it. That he opens heaven in a way that will not be shut again. So it has always been and always will be about the person of Jesus. That's where it happens. And you don't get to do Christianity without him, no matter how much people try. And we'll talk more about that next week. Let's stop here. Stop here and take stock of what we've seen so far in the story of Nathaniel. Again, we'll talk more next week about discipleship and what it all really involves. But maybe we can try to keep these things at the front of our minds as we consider what it means to be a disciple what it means to invite others to do the same. First, let us remember that it always happens in the context of community, that nothing replaces the invitation and witness of a friend. No manipulation, no forcing anything, just the genuine telling of the truth and the come and see for yourself, right? We should never feel badly or strangely about participating in that activity. It always takes place in the context of community, and the call begins with the good news of being truly known and still deeply loved. This is true of Christ's posture towards us, as hard as that is to accept, and it should be reflected in our posture towards each other, as hard as it is to do. We should be the kind of people who create a space where people can be their authentic selves and still be beloved. This is a heavenly thing. It always happens in the context of community. It begins with the good news of being known and still deeply loved. And discipleship will always be relentlessly centered on Jesus himself. The place where the divine and the ordinary all meet together. True discipleship will never attempt to do Christianity without Christ. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about being a disciple. So come and see for yourself the unexpected goodness of a God who is unconditional love. Be truly known and deeply beloved by the one who warrants reorienting everything towards himself. Because there are greater things to still behold. Amen and amen. Let's pray.
God, we are grateful that there is a calling, that there is an invitation. That, Lord, all the things put before us in this world that claim to be the point of why we're here are not our real purpose in this world. God, we are grateful that you are a God who created all, a God who is bigger than anything we could possibly wrap our minds around, that you are the first mover, the first among all things, and yet you are also the God who is with us. You are the God who took flesh and blood, that dwelt among us. You are a God that wept and bled and walked the same earth we walk. You are a God who experienced all that it means to be human, good, bad, and ugly. That you are a God who is with us because you are a God who loves us as we are. That you are not afraid of the dirt and the mess that we bring, but you enter into it with us. God, may we forever revel in the beauty of the creator of all things who knows us and still finds us beloved. God, help us to create the kind of community where people are invited into that good news. May we believe for ourselves how beloved we are and may we treat each other with that same kindness. And God, may we always and forever keep our eyes fixed on the point of it all. God, we do love you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.